So the Yoga Sutras. That's fine. Oh, that's not fine. Uh, <laughs> it's called the Ghost in the Machine. Okay. Spare parts. <laughs> so, uh, take two. Thanks again for coming, and you're all still here. So, the Yoga Sutras, um, written probably a little over, uh, well, approximately 2,000 years ago. Uh, the dates of ancient Indian texts are always uh, a little difficult to pin down. And... <laughs> so, um, sutra, the word sutra, the word yoga, um, Patanjali is going to define. I'm going to basically go over the first uh, several sutras, uh, but the word the word sutra is actually it means a thread, and we have the word sutra in English still, in a somewhat modified form in words like suture, which is a stitch, or in fact the verb sew, sew and sue, The Sanskrit root is sue, so that's actually the same word. English is an Indo-European language, so a sutra is a, a book of threads in the sense that it just gives the essence of things. It's, it's this highly condensed form of expression. And there are many sutra literatures. It's a whole genre in Sanskrit. There are yoga sutras, and the most famous sutras are the Brahma sutras or Vedanta sutras, which talk about the ultimate nature of the absolute truth, and, uh, and so on. So the yoga sutras are the very short, pithy, condensed, statements about yoga. Um, so one thing I'll mention also is that there are six classical schools of, of thought in India or in this Vedic culture, and they're generally grouped in pairs. So Sankhya and yoga are always given together. And Sankhya and yoga means something like philosophy and practice. Patanjali, the author in the Yoga Sutras assumes that you know Sankhya philosophy. And everything he says in the Yoga Sutras is consistent with or based on the picture of the world and what's beyond the world and the soul and God and so on, which is found in Sankhya or the ancient philosophical system. So when I refer to what words mean in these sutras, I'm speaking within that context which Patanjali operated within. So why did he write this book? It's kind of like um, self-realization for dummies. You know those books, such and such for dummies. So it was, uh, it's not a sectarian book. Uh, at that time in South Asia, there were different schools of thought or there were different um, devotional groups. Some people worshiping Vishnu or Krishna, some worshiping Shiva or the goddess Shakti. Uh, so Patanjali wants to give a sort of a non-sectarian manual 
for yoga. And of course, when we go over the Ashtanga yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, we'll find that the first four are basically preparation and the second four are the actual spiritual process. The first four involve uh, preparing for the actual spiritual encounter. Anyway, so I will um, read first several sutras to give you an idea what's going on. Um, just going to blow them up a little bit so I can actually read them. Oops, uh, too much. Okay, here we go. So potentially begins with a simple statement, Atta Yoga Nushasana. That's the first sutra. Atta means now. And now the Yoga Nushasana, uh, the Anushasana of yoga. Anushasana is often translated as it is here. I just picked up a online, just, you know, the first translation I came to. And introduction to the study and practice of yoga. Not exactly what it means, but literally uh, Sanskrit this ancient language, it's a very scientific language. For example, the modern science, you could say, of linguistics, including phonology, actually arose in the West in Europe upon the discovery of ancient Sanskrit grammar. So Sanskrit was absolutely the first language that was scientifically, in every sense of the word, scientifically studied by the people who spoke it and who wrote it. The reason they gave such extraordinary attention to language is because uh, they understood that language can unlock uh, self-realization. They did not say, uh, for the most part, that the truth cannot be expressed in words uh, because they believe that words can be very powerful, that there, and there are mundane words and there are transcendental words because after all, words are vibrations and there's a, whole, there's a whole very sophisticated philosophy of language behind this culture where they understood that sound or vibration uh, has extraordinary potential and when it's operating properly, it can function spiritually and it can enlighten us. And so that's what they meant by language, not simply something on a page, although that's a you know, valid representation, but the actual vibration, the actual sound, uh, which can do all kinds of amazing things, including enlighten you. So this is not uh, a tradition that's going to write a thousand books explaining why you can't write books or you can't. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, so shas, the verb shas, so the way the ancient scholars, and they were very much scholars, brilliant scholars, the way they analyzed the Sanskrit language is that it, 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 was, it was in an organic way, almost you could say in a botanical way, in the sense that words, meaningful words, are just sounds that actually mean something, that arouse understanding in the human mind. Uh, they grow out of roots, that language has roots. In the case of Sanskrit, they consider them to be verbal roots because the world is constantly in motion and the very act of understanding is an action. And therefore, since language conveys understanding and understanding is an action, ultimately uh, the roots of all verbal expression are verbs, uh, verbal roots. Anyway, I hope there's not too much information. I just wanted to give you an idea that behind the Yoga Sutras and many other sacred literatures, 
there's a lot of intelligent thinking going on about self-realization. So the first sutra is uh, at the now Yoganushasanam, the root shas. That's why I mentioned that root thing. Anushasanam consists of a prefix, anu, which means to follow, and shas. Uh, shas the, the, the verb shas means to command. And therefore, shasanam doesn't simply mean a teaching. It means an authoritative teaching, a teaching which actually has the authority uh, to, to help us, to enlighten us, because it's giving true information. And there's a sense in which the truth has a claim on us. If you, have, if you are a person of integrity and you cannot knowingly or willfully do something that you know is not true, uh, or, or you cannot speak or follow something that you know is not true, then the mere fact that something is true has a claim on you. And, and, and people with this kind of integrity feel that if someone can demonstrate to me beyond doubt that something is true, then that creates in me a responsibility to respond appropriately to the truth. So that's the culture we're, 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 we're in right now in this world of Patanjali, trying to take you back into his world. Uh, these are all these things that I'm explaining, everyone understood these things. So shas is the verb which means to command. And therefore a shasanam is not merely a teaching, it's, an, it's a teaching which is authoritative. And anu, uh, the word anu we're following, here indicates that Patanjali lay, is not making any claim to having discovered or invented something new which would immediately make him extremely suspect in that culture. But actually he's saying that I am faithfully giving you the knowledge which is coming down to us from uh, great yogis, from great enlightened souls, great sages. And I am simply presenting to you uh, this authorized knowledge. So all that is very much there in the first little sutra, the Yoganushasanam, if you know what the Sanskrit words mean. And that's why it's called a sutra because it's very short but it packs a punch. There's a lot of meaning in it. So, uh, having said that now you're going to get an, an authoritative teaching on yoga, which is coming down to sacred tradition, he next tells us uh, what yoga is. He defines the word yoga. And he says, uh, yoga is chitta vritti, vritti nirodha, uh, which literally means yoga is uh, stopping the turning of the mind. It's the word verti. Verti, yoga, uh, yoga's chitta verti. Chitta means mind or consciousness. Uh, well, the translation here is not very literal, so I won't read it. Um, interestingly, verti, which literally means turning, it can also mean functioning or all kinds of things, but, but the root literal meaning is, is to turn. And we still have the word in English, by the way, you may be interested to know. And just as we have prefixes and then words like anushasanam, so we have the word vert in English, which is the stem uh, vert, verti, in words like, and we have little prefixes to give different meanings like invert, revert, pervert, subvert, extrovert. That's all basically Sanskrit. And, uh, or it, it's, it's cognate with Sanskrit. 
And so after all, to invert means to turn inwards, to extrovert means to turn outwards, to revert means to turn back again, and to invert means to turn in, and, and you can see it, vert, turn. It still has the same meaning, the same word in English. So yoga, the definition of yoga is chitta vritti. The mind is turning. What's wrong with that? I mean, it sounds like fun. <laughs> What's wrong with the mind turning? The idea here is the mind is turning away from the truth, the truth about who we are. And so if you value knowing yourself, after all that was engraved in the great uh, ancient Greek temple on the island of Delphi, where there was a priestess, the oracle, who would communicate with Apollo, and people would go from all over the Greek world and outside the Greek world, and ask questions to the priestess who would then ask Apollo and channel the answer. But what's interesting here is that on that famous temple uh, was engraved the words, know thyself, know thyself. So if you believe that's a good idea, then uh, you may be interested in yoga because the whole purpose as Patanjali says here is to stop the mind from turning away from who we really are and to stop the mind from turning away from uh, what the world really is and where the world comes from. So that's what yoga is going to be. It's gonna stop this turning, turning of the mind. So uh, having said that, then Patanjali says, tada, which means <coughs> then, tada drashtu swarupe avastan. When you are successful at yoga, when you actually stop the mind from turning away from the truth of yourself and everything else, then, tada, drashtu, he says, he describes the practitioner, the yogi, or in the case of a lady, the yogini, he describes the practitioner as drashtu, a seer, a seer, one who sees. Uh, this is interesting because uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, which is the most important, most revered book on this culture, the Bhagavad Gita, which gives much more of the philosophy and, and just a, a little bit of the practice, um, seeing is often taken as a synonym for knowing, to, to really know, not just to know so you can answer a truth true or false question or multiple choice question, but you, you really see something, you really know it. And so then if you stop the mind from turning as a yogi, then you become situated, you become established in your real self, in your real self. And the Sanskrit word for your true self, which is a common word in philosophical Sanskrit is Swarupa. Rupa means form. And also, interestingly, it, it means a, uh, an attractive form. So the good news is all of us in our original spiritual form are very good looking. So uh, that's what, and swa just means one's own, one's own. Uh, we still have swa in so many languages like Spanish, su, sukasa, nikasa, sukasa, or, uh, Italian, Sua, anyway, won't quote all the languages. So, Swa means one's own. So, Swarupa, 
which is very important, it's a key term actually in the Yoga Sutras because toward the end of the Yoga Sutras, uh, Patanjali is going to conclude that if you really made it, if you really achieved enlightenment, then you become situated again in your sarupa. So he mentions it at the beginning, he'll mention it again at the end, that this is real happiness, this is real life, this is real consciousness, enlightenment, uh, to be situated in your real self. And what's interesting is your real self is a form. That's what the word literally means, rupa. It means a form, a beautiful form, but in your own form. So from the very beginning, it's understood. This is not impersonal. This is not about, uh, you could say, spiritual suicide, in the sense that enlightenment means to kill or transcend your personal life. At the present time, we are all persons. And that's a great thing to be. Each of us has free will. Each of us has individual consciousness. You have this fantastic, really unlimited freedom if you know how to use it. And there are certain activities, for example, which curtail our freedom. For example, if someone unfortunately becomes addicted to drugs, then they've made choices which actually destroy the freedom which enabled the choice. And basically all the 12-step programs. There's all kinds of addictions. And the problem with addiction is that it destroys freedom. So that which destroys freedom is not really desirable. So suicide is not a good option, whether it's physical or philosophical or, med or meditational. It's just, it's not a good idea to try to destroy yourself. It's, just, it's not the way to go. And so now each one of us is an individual, free, conscious person and the purpose of yoga is not to destroy that. It's to actually discover our eternal and unlimited beauty, personal consciousness, wisdom. All these things are unlimited. Uh, the example sometimes given, such as in Bhagavad Gita in the famous uh, verse in chapter 15 about the banyan tree, that um, this world is, in a sense, a reflection of a higher world. I mean, imagine, I'm, this is, of course, Neoplatonism, if you know Western philosophy. So imagine if you're standing on the bank of a clear pond, crystal clear pond, which is still, in other words, all the conditions are there for perfect reflection. And you see, let's say, an apple tree. This is victorious. Maybe we'll go with apple trees. So you see an apple tree reflected in the water. Now, let's say you don't know that it's reflection and you're hungry and you try to eat the reflected apples. They look exactly like apples. However, you can't eat them because they're mere reflections. If you simply look up, you'll see the real apples, which you can actually touch and eat and satisfy yourself. So the idea here is that the reason we're frustrated, I mean, if you're not at all unhappy in life, you know, raise your hand, but in other words, if you have, you know, there's nothing you could possibly imagine that you would want that you don't have, like nothing. So the reason we tend not, of course, when you're young, sometimes you think, well, I haven't got it now, but I'll get it. And anyway, I won't pop that double right now. So all of our frustration, whether it's frustration with the way we look, with the, with the relationships we have or don't have, 
the place we're in, the situation we're in, the world we're in, all of our frustration is due to one very simple reason. We're trying to eat the reflected apples instead of looking up at the real ones. And so that's the idea. The idea is that by yoga, uh, serious yoga, you become aware of, well, to put it bluntly, the real world. And the idea that down here, this material world is the real world is a mistake. I mean, it is real. This is, I mean, it's not that it doesn't exist. It's real. It's just not the real world in the sense that it's not our real home. It's because if you think about it, you are an eternal conscious being. And right now you're doing business as a material body, either male or female, a particular race, ethnicity, age, size, shape, whatever. And so, and again, I want to give you a little bit of this information because Patanjali assumes you know this. This was like ABC. He assumes that you know this. So that, uh, as Krishna explains it in Bhagavad Gita, that logically, we cannot possibly be our bodies. It's just logically impossible. And I'll explain that. Um, all of us have experience of growing up. You know, once we were very little, our bodies were, and then we grow up through childhood, adolescence, we become adults and so on. Now, the fact is that your, your infant body didn't just stretch into your adult body. That's not what happened. Actually, we're eating, and as they said originally in German, er ist was er ist, you are what you eat. Um, so we are actually changing our body at every moment. The body you have right now, and this is, by the way, the whole point of the Buddhist emptiness thing. It's really just simply this. That the body that you are sitting in right now is not exactly the same body you walked in with. I mean, obviously, it's, it's similar enough so we know who you are. But the point is that your body is constantly in flux. Inside your body right now, there are literally millions of extremely sophisticated microbiological processes going on. And as you're breathing out, you're breathing out elements which used to be in your body, now they're gone, and you're breathing in. And so even if you look at the whole prana thing, you know, your, your vital air, that just by breathing, you are reconstituting your body at every moment. And so therefore, you literally are not in exactly the same body you walked in with. And again, that's the Buddhist emptiness idea, that you can't point to a material thing in this world and say that it's just that thing, because as soon as you finish saying that, it's slightly different than what it was. And so there's no fixed object. Anyway, so the body is constantly changing, and approximately every seven years, you've literally reincarnated. Carne in Latin means flesh, so reincarnate means to reinflesh. Uh, I guess you'd call that atma con carne or something. But anyway, <laughs> the soul within a material body. That was a joke. So, um, so on the one hand, the body is constantly changing, and yet you are the same person. Even though, and you undoubtedly changed your mind about many things since you were three years old or five years old. We've changed our mind, probably today we've changed our mind about something. 
we have different feelings about things. However, despite these mental changes or emotional changes, the most powerful, significant fact is it's still you. It's still you. You don't become a different person every time you change your mind or change your clothes or even every time you reincarnate. Like if you divide your age by seven, that's how many reincarnations you've had in this life. So since the body is constantly changing and, you know, and after so many years, it's just, it's really a whole new body and the skin takes about two weeks. So if you romantically, you know, if you look in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall and you look in the mirror two weeks later, you're literally seeing a different face because the skin has replaced itself. I found that out when I was at Harvard because I got poison oak and it actually bonds at the skin. So it takes about two weeks before you actually produce new skin and shed the old skin. So, yeah, so, so if you look in the mirror now, it's literally not the same face you were looking at two weeks ago. And yet, obviously, you are the same person. And that's why potentially here uses the word drushtu. Drushtu actually is the genitive form, means of the seer. The, the, the nominal form is drushtu, the seer, drushtu. So he uses the word seer because what you are not is drishta, which means the seen. You are not the seen, you are the seer. And so if you take yourself to be the seen, that which is seen by looking in the mirror and thinking that's me, uh, huge misunderstanding because you are the seer, not the seen. In fact, even in postmodern whatever, um, it's common, you know, people say, don't objectify me. Like you shouldn't, what does it mean to objectify someone? It means that every one of us is actually a subject. In other words, we're individual, personal, unique consciousness. So we are subjects. But if someone wants to exploit us in some way, they see us as an object. For example, let's say someone who wants to sexually exploit another person. Uh, that other person is actually a seer, a subject inside the body, but the uh, exploitative person sees that person as simply an object of his or her consciousness, rather than seeing that person as the subject of their own consciousness. So that's what it means to objectify someone. It doesn't mean to see them objectively. It's a negative word meaning that you, in your mind, degrade a subject by seeing that person as an object of your subjective consciousness. So that's why potentially uses this word. He says that the whole point is for the seer, the seer to become established in his or her real form, the real position, which is personal. And which is very beautiful. The word rupa actually doesn't merely mean form, mean form. It actually means a beautiful form. So that's the next verse. Tada, then when you, when you practice yoga and stop the mind from turning away from the truth. And by the way, if, if you know Ashtanga Yoga, uh, number five, actually number six, is dharana. Dharana, which means hold on. And maybe I'll go through the Ashtanga Yoga real quickly so you can see how that ties into what I just said. Uh, it starts out Yama, which means rules, and, you know, Niyama, it's like rules and regulations, which we can go over. 
to practice yoga, you have to, your mind has to be at peace. And if someone is a thief, because actually he mentions that, if someone is a thief or just, you're just not in virtuous consciousness, you're not in a kind, compassionate consciousness, then it's going to disturb your mind. Because, uh, I should put it, a selfishness actually disturbs the mind. That's the basic point. Selfishness, you can't be peaceful and selfish at the same time. It's just the way we're wired. And so therefore you have these yamas and niyamas to kind of get you under control and to get you into a virtuous, peaceful consciousness. And then uh, that's niyama, niyama, then asana. You have to condition your body through asana so you can sit for long periods and meditate, not get really bad cramps. You know, it's because it's, it's not easy, this. Especially because there were a lot of elderly people that were yogis, and for them to sit for a long time, it's uh, challenging. So that's what the asanas are, really. It's just it's just conditioning your body so that you can your body won't disturb you when you're sitting for meditation. And then uh, pranayama, control the breathing, because the the prana, the vital air, is uh, it, it, it's where it's intimately connected or vital energy. So by controlling the prana, you're also basically controlling your core. Thanks the word they use nowadays. It really means it's like controlling your core energy. So that's pranayama. So you've done all that. You're a good person. You're regulated. You, you know, you take a bath every day. And um, you're ready. So you, 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 um, you learn how to sit properly so, you, so your body will be peaceful. You learn how to breathe properly so your energetic core will be peaceful. And now we're ready to go. So then number five is pratyahara. Uh, prati in Sanskrit uh, means counter in the sense of like opposite. It, it can mean a few other things, but here it, it means that. So for, for so ahara in Sanskrit, it means something like consumption in the broader sense to consume. And the idea here is that um, our senses are roving out there in the world. Like our eyes want to see something attractive or pleasing. The ears want to hear something pleasing. That's why you go into some of these like, you know, fancy stores, there's all kinds of eye candy and ear candy, you know, all these things. And so, uh, so that's what the senses are doing. They're, to use, a, actually kind of a funny word Chris used, they're kind of like grazing, you know, looking for green pastures. So the senses are just out there. And obviously if your senses are out there because the senses pull your mind with them, like if your senses see something like, wow, that is so beautiful, then boom, your mind goes into it. Or your ears or, or smell, taste, touch, and so on. So pratyahara, so that's all that, where the senses are kind of, I mean, to use kind of a, an unusual word, but gives the idea of consuming, the sense of trying to enjoy uh, objects, sense objects, that's ahara. Pratyahara means that you pull your senses back from like going out into the world, trying to exploit everything sensually, and you bring your mind back within. That's a major move. I mean, if you wanna, if you have like a little five minute a day meditation, it's, you know, don't worry about it. But if you've got like a five year meditation happening or a 50 year meditation happening or, or, or even longer than that, then uh, to pull your mind, within 
when the mind only wants to go out there and enjoy things, it's a big move. And therefore, number six in the Ashtanga Yoga, Ashta, of course, just means ocho in Spanish, eight. So number six is dharana, and that's what I was getting to. Dharana means just like hang on, hanging on, because precisely because pulling your consciousness within when it only wants to go out there, it's, it's not that it's artificial, but it's not what we are used to doing. The mind is very much habituated to going out to exploit the world through the senses. And therefore, when you pull the consciousness in, you then have to hold it there, and that's exactly what dharana means. You have to hold it there, and then you can start meditating. Actually, after you've done all that, then you can start meditating. But uh, so that's the idea that tada dustu avastasanam. So to be situated in your own true self, who you really are, your, your eternal, beautiful form, uh, you have to be able to do that, and you can't do that if your mind is just spinning out of control which is the definition of yoga, means stopping that, stopping the mind from spinning everywhere and just going crazy over the material world. So that's what's going on here. Any questions on these things? It's all pretty simple, actually. I mean, essentially, it's pretty simple. So, um, so then, potentially gives a little warning. He'll always say, like, uh, if you do this, great things will happen. If you don't do it, you know, trouble. And so he says, Vritti Sarupyam Itaratra. This is very interesting. Itaratra means otherwise. In other words, if you don't achieve this yoga goal of really fixing yourself, your true self, your eternal beautiful form, which is eternal, if you don't do that, then Vritti Sarupyam, what happens is the word sarupyam, anyway, I don't want to go into too much grammar here. I'll try to make it painless. Making grammar painless, now that's an achievement. So, but sarupyam comes from the word sarupa, and it's related to the previous verse, swarupa, your own true form. And, and what he's saying is, if you do practice yoga successfully, you will become established in your real form, who you really are. And if you don't, then you will become established in another form, another reality, which is just wherever your mind happens to be turning today. So, like, you may go out, someone may go out in the street and think that I'm Joe Macho, or I'm a sex goddess, or I'm an intellectual, or I'm an artist, and, you know, there, there's a certain way you dress to show you're an artist that doesn't care about dress. <laughs> so, um, if we don't stop the mind from spinning all over the place, and, and of course it's spinning precisely because the senses are going out into the world and the mind's chasing after all these senses, and that's why it's turning around. And so if we don't successfully practice yoga, we will simply take on whatever identity the mind happens to be doing this week. So for example, let's say, oh, she loves me, so now my identity just shot up. Wow, I'm a great person now. No, actually, she doesn't love me. Then I crash. And so if you think about it, I got the job. I didn't get the job. I got into the prestigious university. I didn't get in. Uh, or I got a good medical report. Uh-oh, I got a 
the tragic mental. So if you think about it, wherever the mind is going, that's who you become. You have this sort of crazy fluid identity and you're being buffeted and battered about by just whatever happened this morning or tonight. And potentially saying, that's not the real you. So you have these two choices. Be successful in yoga and find out who you really are. Or, or these turnings of the mind, vritti, yoga is meant to stop them, will just take you, drag you through the mud of all kinds of false identities, which will sometimes elate us and a lot of the time depress us. And it's going to be a rocky road. And that's basically what potentially is saying here. So, um, then what does he say? Let's see. Um, then he says there are five main turnings of the mind. Some of them appear to give us a good life. Some of them really mess up our life. Klishta, klishta. And, uh, and then he starts going into the details of it. He, and so the, the kinds of turnings which really make us unhappy are, for example, going against evidence. For example, we now know that eating uh, meat is basically sort of the equivalent of smoking in terms of the effect on your health. And morally, of course, it's much worse. And so pramana vipariya means kind of like going against the evidence, not paying attention to what really is right there in front of you. For example, one thing that's right there in front of us is that we are not the body. We are actually the conscious beings within the body. And so if we simply go against the evidence and continue to carry out our lives as if we were the body, which is sort of a fairy tale, uh, then that's going to lead to unhappiness. And also he says, um, and other things. So any questions so far on this? Yes, please. Um, first of all, Namaskaram. I feel lucky to be here. Thank you for coming. Uh, I just have a question, which I, I'm not sure if it's related. But it's a question I feel like I have to ask. Yes. Um, it's about the path of yoga and the path of devotion. So are they separate paths or something? Do they collide somewhere or do you have to take one path? Good question. Um, very good question. In the Bhagavad Gita, which again gives the philosophy behind all this, the metaphysics, so to speak, um, Krishna describes many paths of yoga. Some of them just are, of course, dhyana yoga, meditation. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, jnana yoga. Uh, jnana, from which we get the Greek word gnosis, like and then one who doesn't know, agnostic. So that's jnana yoga, where you really cultivate wisdom. You're, you're sort of knowledge-oriented. Whereas jnana yoga, the uh, person is more meditation-oriented. There's karma yoga, which means that given the reality of your life, you have to work in this world. And let's say you have a family. And so you can transform <coughs> those duties <coughs> of working in the world. You can transform that into yoga, into a powerful yoga, and that's called karma yoga. The word karma, by the way, in Sanskrit, uh, comes from a root kri, which we still have in English in words like create, which is from the same root as karma. And um, so karma literally just means action. It has special meanings. 
For example, it can mean your karma, like the reactions to what you've done. So it can mean karma in the popular sense. It can mean uh, duty, to do your duty. Karma action can mean your duty. And here, uh, so in the, in the sense of karma yoga, it means that what you do in life, your vocation, your profession, your duty, what, what you do in the world. And that can become yoga in a very powerful way. And that's actually what Krishna taught Arjuna. Arjuna uh, was, in a sense, practicing karma yoga because he was a warrior. By the way, have you ever wondered why a spiritual book is advocating warfare? Uh, I don't know if any of you ever wondered about that. Maybe I'll just say a word on that about the Bhagavad Gita. Um, no, I'm getting to Bhakti Yoga. So, um, the Bhagavad Gita uh, is a, just in terms of volume, a very, very small part of a much, much larger work, which is called Mahabharata, Great Bharata. Just like there's Great Britain, so for in ancient times, Magna Grecia, Greater Greece. Um, so, Great Bharata, which is an ancient name of the land of South Asia. It's not merely India because it was larger than what is now India, included modern Pakistan, uh, even parts of Afghanistan. Uh, if you know Mahabharata, one of the great ladies is Gandhari, so named because she comes from the kingdom of Gandhara, which today is Kandahar in Afghanistan. And so basically you could say that Bharata was South Asia. And Mahabharata means great Bharata. And so, um, so the, uh, I forget, I just, I just kind of had a little laugh. Warfare. Yeah, warfare, right, warfare. <laughs> oh, bless you. So, um, 5,000 years ago, if you, and this is the history of Mahabharata, with, uh, actually I've translated a good bunch of it from Sanskrit, but in Mahabharata, um, the political system, if you look at the kingdoms uh, and you ask simple question in modern political science terms, what kind of political system they have, it was constitutional monarchy. Constitutional monarchy should not be confused with absolute monarchy, or which is a form of totalitarianism in which the king can do no wrong and, and basically yeah, the rulers can do whatever they want and it's, if you don't like it, it's tough luck. Uh, the ancient political system uh, was based on dharma. The word dharma, among other things, is probably the most important Sanskrit word for law. Law. And uh, we can imagine an unjust law, but you can't speak of unjust dharma because dharma also means justice. And so dharma really has the sense of a divine law, a law which really embodies justice in the highest sense. And uh, kings had to follow the law. So this is not absolute monarchy, you know, off with their heads. This is, con this is constitutional government. For example, they had freedom of speech. We find that when the citizens were really unhappy with the rulers, they could just walk right into the town square and say the king's a fool. And they, they could not be punished for that because they had freedom of speech. So it's very interesting. And, and the reason I mention all this is because um, and, and people do that in the Mahabharata. They do walk into the center of town and, and begin to insult the king when they feel the king is really out of bounds. 
And it's interesting because in the case for just those of you who know the Mahabharata will know the story that when the people in the imperial capital of Hastinapur believed that the king and his son, Duryodhana, Dhritarashtra, had killed the five brothers, the Pandavas who were just wildly popular with the people, uh, they went to the center of town and started chastising the king and, and, and really getting angry about it. And so how did the king respond? Did he send out you know, the stormtroopers? No. The king calls his ministers and, and says, uh, we better get our act together or they're going to just overthrow us. And they're going to, in other words, no question, you can't kill innocent people. You can't arrest innocent people. If you do so, you're considered to be an asura, demonic. So the reason this is important that they actually have constitutional monarchy based on valid principles of justice and freedom and equality, actually. The reason that's important is because 5,000 years ago when the battle took place, all that was threatened. And a gentleman named Duryodhana had seized the throne, violated the constitution. It was basically a coup d'etat. He, he, he took power, usurped the throne. And the whole battle of Kurukshetra, which is the scene of Bhagavad Gita, was uh, Krishna and his devotees restoring constitutional government. Now, if in Australia, let's see, by some really unforeseeable circumstance, you woke up one morning and heard that actually the government had been usurped, that you were no longer living in a free society, the laws had been suspended, and there was some dictator who had just taken over the government of Australia. Now, would you rather that, let's say, the military forces of Australia restore constitutional government or say, no, nah, you know, totalitarian dictatorship's not so bad. So I think most people, and, and that's basically what's going on. Before the battle took place, before the battle took place, uh, Krishna himself and Arjuna and others did everything humanly possible. It's funny talking about Krishna. Did everybody did everything possible to avoid the war? They offered compromises. They offered all kinds of very generous compromises, but the other side was determined that they were just going to have everything and, you know, the hell with Dharma. And that's why there was a war. Also, everyone on the battlefield was a volunteer. Uh, there were no civilian casualties. There was no friendly fire. There was no, uh, you know, collateral damage. There weren't, you know, no civilians were bombed. So, I mean, it's just like, for example, let's say you go to a, what do you call it? Rugby Aussie rules? <laughs> Football, what do you call it? Footy. Okay. Footy. I mean, what if you go to a footy game and one of the players just sort of runs up into the stands and starts punching out some, you know, some old lady or something? I mean, you can't do that. So just as in, let's say, there are some sports which are somewhat violent, but it's confined to the players who voluntarily walked onto the field. So there was a Greek ambassador who visited India about 2,300 years ago, a Greek ambassador named Megasthenes, and fortunately he wrote a book about India called Indica, which in Greek meant about India. And he said that it's a remarkable country. Among the things he noticed is that unlike all the other countries he knew about in India, there was no slavery. 
and uh, their people were actually treated well. There was practically no crime. You could walk all across the, the subcontinent in, in complete safety. And he said, but when there's a battle, there can be a military battle going on, and literally a few hundred meters away, a farmer is just peacefully plowing his field. It's just like if there's, let's say, in a stadium, there's a footy, right? <laughs> let's say there's a footy match going on. It's not that, you know, everyone that lives in the neighborhood runs in terror because those big, heavy players may, you know, come out of the stadium and start punching us up. It, it, that really doesn't happen. That, that's very rare. And so in the same way, the rules of warfare were so strict that a pitched battle was going on and everyone else was completely safe and didn't really worry about it, didn't worry about their own safety. So there was a lot at stake here. There was a lot at stake. So that's why the violence is going on. And that's why Christians telling Arjun to fight to restore constitutional government and practically human rights. And so in any case, getting back to yoga, um, so there's all these different yogas, karma yoga, dhyana yoga, jnana yoga, and uh, Krishna also uses the term buddhi yoga, which is similar to jnana yoga. It's the yoga of rational intelligence, where you literally, you go back to the source of your existence, the absolute truth, by becoming a thoroughly rational human being. And by thoroughly rational means you make physical and metaphysical distinctions, which I explained in detail last night. In other words, you understand the soul, you understand God, you understand the laws of the universe. You just understand how the whole thing works. And by these rational distinctions, you actually go back to your eternal home. So um, there's all these yogas, but then after describing all these yogas, uh, in chapter six, which is the chapter where Krishna talks, actually goes into some hatha yoga and meditation techniques. And so at the end of that chapter, he says, yogi nama pi sarvesham which means something like, however, among all yogis, yogi nama pisarvesham, among all yogis, all spiritual practitioners, antaratmana, one who's literally inner self, antaratma, inner self, one whose inner self has gone to me, meaning to the absolute truth. Madgatena antaratmana, shadhavan, and with real trust, the word shraddhavan can mean, can be translated sometimes like one less faith, means more than that. Because in Sanskrit, uh, if you just mean you believe in God, like do you believe in God, I believe in God, or I don't believe in God, that's a different word. In Sanskrit, uh, if you believe in God, that's called astikya, from the Sanskrit verb asti, which means he or she exists. So if you believe he or she, the divine, exists, that's astikya. And if you believe that the divine doesn't exist, that's Nastikyam. So, uh, so Shraddha is something more. Shraddha, first of all, is an action. It literally means placing, ha, shud. You're placing your trust in something. Because you can believe that God or whatever word you use, you know, the divine, the absolute truth, whatever. You can believe that God exists, but you just may not be interested in furthering that relationship at this point in your life. For example, let's say you're in uh, Melbourne, I'm trying to pronounce it properly, <laughs> trying to resist the urge to say Melbourne. 
There's also Melbourne, by the way, Florida. It's a little nice little beach town. So um, in Melbourne, for example, it is a well-organized city. It's famous for being a well-organized city. And so there's all these benefits. That there, there are branches of the government here that uh, provide uh, efficient public transportation, who provide security in the form of a police force, and so on and so forth. Now, you may believe in all that. You may believe in all that, and you're happy that it's all going on. You're just not particularly interested in getting to know these bureaucrats very well. It's like, you know, you're not going to invite them to your party just because they keep the trains running. Or even if they protect you. And so you can believe that something exists, but it doesn't mean you're, you really want to, you really want a more intimate connection with those authorities. And so if you merely believe that the divine exists, that's astikyam. If you believe that it's in my rational self-interest to powerfully develop my relationship with the source of my own existence, that's called shadhavan. And, and that's yoga. That's what the word yoga means. It means link. We still have the word yoga in English, of course. I always explain that yoke, to, to yoke things, to connect things, link them together as yoke. Interestingly, uh, the word religion comes from the same root as yoga, which may seriously disappoint some people. But uh, the word religion comes from the Latin re ligare, like a ligament connects things to the body, to reconnect. So re ligare means to reconnect. And yoga also means that, by the way. So it's all related if, if you look deeper. And so... Um, so Krishna says of all yogis, the one who is, whose inner self has gone to me, madgatena antaratmana, and shadhavan, and really putting their, sort of their hope and trust in this higher reality, rather than just finding a way to make my body a little sexier tonight. I mean, if your hope for a great life is based on reconnecting to the source of your existence, then, uh, Krishna says the one who puts their hope and trust in that and whose inner self, inner self, because not just outwardly, but your inner self is really there. Then Krishna says that yogi, same yukta tamomata. Uh, that is, it's, it's translated the greatest yogi, but it literally means, in Sanskrit the word yukta is from the same root as yoga. Yoga means linking, yukta means linked, connected. You're connected to the absolute truth. And so yukta tama means most connected. Again, if yoga means to connect, the person who's most connected is the greatest yogi, because that's what yoga means. So Krishna says the one who's yukta tama, the most connected to the absolute truth, the most intimately connected in yoga, is the one who has learned to love. The one who has learned to love. Sama yukta tama. Because he says, one who really puts their trust in this. And uh, the word mong, it can be translated, one who worships me. The word, uh, sorry, it's going to sound like English, budge, like I won't budge. That's actually how you pronounce it. And uh, it can mean, the verb, it can mean to worship, but it means more than that. It means actually also sharing your life with someone. For example, how do they pop the question in Sanskrit in this ancient culture? You know, what do they do? Uh, a typical marriage proposal 
uh, this comes from Mahabharata because I translate all this stuff, and so I remember. A typical marriage proposal will be uh, accept me as I am accepting you or share your life with me as I am sharing my life with you or I want to share my life with you. So it's very nice. It's a very beautiful way to pop the question. So budge, it means sharing, it means worshiping, it means um, all these things. It's sort of reciprocating in a sense. It's about a deep reciprocation. Like for example, you know, if, if someone says, uh, like say you're walking down the street and someone says, good morning, then you may say good morning or die. So, but so, so, so that's, that's reciprocation at a, you know, very simple citizen to citizen level. And let's say the person stops and wants to talk. Hey, you know, where are you from? And you may not want to stop and talk. So you may not want that level of reciprocation. Or you may. You know, it depends on all kinds of things. And so really, if you think about reciprocation, you know, going beyond maybe just like nodding to someone on the jogging path or something, or saying good morning. And so when you meet people, and let's say they take a step toward you, then you decide, do I want that level of intimacy? Like that's too close. So you take a step back and you know, or sometimes someone takes a step toward you and you take a step or two steps toward them because you really think this is a great idea. And so that's what relationships are really. It's just how you measure and how you sort of calculate reciprocity. Like, what level do I want it on? And so that's kind of the sense of when Krishna's budget, one, the idea here is that one whose, whose heart is open to a full loving reciprocation with the source of their own existence. Yes. Can I just ask how um, Krishna's definition of yoga as being connection and a, a reciprocal relationship? How does that relate to Patanjali's explanation of yoga as the turning? Yeah. Well, Patanjali is going to say later, as you know, uh, well, the seventh stage of yoga is jhana, meditation, then samadhi. Samadhi, by the way, is, is made up of three Sanskrit little pieces there. Samadhi. Sam means completely, which we still have in English, through the Greek, we went from India, traveled through the Greek. We have it as the prefix, English prefix, S-Y-N, like synthesis, the complete thesis, or symbiotic, when everything comes together. So that S-Y-M or S-Y-N in English is Sanskrit S-A-M, which is the S-A-M in Samadhi. So sum means completely, and ah means intensely or going within, and D means placing. So when you place the mind intensely and completely within, that's Samadhi. So, um, so saying that yoga means linking, that's not Krishna's definition, that's really in the dictionary. And um, what Patanjali says later on, he will say, Samadhi Siddhi. You've heard the word Siddhi? Like, not like <coughs> Kansas City, but the essentially word Siddhi, like a yoga power. And, but also, actually, literally, Siddhi means perfection in Sanskrit, or achievement or perfection. And so Patanjali will use the term samadhi siddhi, which means the perfection of the perfection of yoga. 
because samadhi is the you know ashtama anga is the eighth the it's the eighth stage of yoga and so it's the perfection of yoga samadhi and then he says there's a samadhi siddhi because if you know your yoga sutras there are different stages of samadhi but he says the perfection of samadhi perfection of the perfection of yoga comes from ishvara pranidhana devoting oneself to the lord so uh we have a match here so yes oh by the oh i'm sorry i i get a lot of uh complaints because this is actually people in other countries are watching this right now so please behave <laughs> don't don't rush the speaker and um so i'm supposed to repeat the questions i'm sorry the the, the question i just answered was what's the connection between the gita and potentially in terms of the word yoga in terms of the word yoga yeah so thank you yes um you have um, or I'm assuming you've chosen um, to make chanting the Mahamantra your um, method to reconnect with in yoga. So can I repeat that? I mean, I hate, I want to know you all, but just for people in other countries, I just want to repeat that. So I've chosen to make the Mahamantra my method of connecting, reconnecting, reconnecting, um, yes, reyoking with your source. And so I was wondering if you could explain a bit about the Mahamantra when it first made its appearance and why it's recommended and, and why you chose that as your method of meditation. Why did I choose the Mahamantra, the great mantra of say Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare? That one. That one. <laughs> <laughs> um, why did I choose that as my method? First of all, I think I I didn't just choose that mantra. I think it was kind of a package deal. It's like if, it's like if you go to a hardware store and you want to buy a hammer and they say, well, the only hammers we sell are in these packages that also have a little screwdriver and a pair of pliers and take it or leave it. Then you buy the package, you get a screwdriver and a pair of pliers and you get the hammer you wanted. So in other words, I, I came across this very powerful uh, spiritual practice of bhakti yoga. And that's what they chanted. Uh, I guess in one sense, the question is, why did I keep chanting? Um, let me quote a verse for you in Sanskrit. That is, Ramante Yogi no Anante, that the yogis or the spiritual practitioners uh, enjoy in the infinite. This is a definition of, of a yogi. A yogi is a person, did I actually get to your... Think about yoga and karma yoga today. I just realized. I think you read that. Okay. Yeah. Sorry if I. Uh, <laughs> anyway, if I didn't, I'll get back to that. So this is a definition of a yogi. A yogi is a person who takes pleasure, who enjoys in the infinite, not in the finite. Because obviously, if we're trying to enjoy little things, or we're going to have little pleasure. You cannot enjoy more than the size of that which you're trying to enjoy. It's like goldfish, right? They grow according to their habitat, the size of their habitat. It's like you, if you shine a ray of light into the night sky, the ray can just expand literally, you know, for almost unlimitedly in space. 
But if you shine that same light inside a little box, it has nowhere to go. So you have an unlimited amount of love in your heart. And you can't really be happier than the amount you love. I mean, if you're not loving, you can't. And other things may be nice, like, oh, I like to go bowling, you know, 10-pin bowling. But So really, I mean, ultimately, bliss or, or real happiness comes from I should say authentically falling in love. By authentically, I mean not loving someone because you've convinced yourself that they're something other than what they really are. And then there's kind of like, you know, lover's remorse, like buyer's remorse. You know, you fell in love with someone, then you realize you fell in love with your own imagination about what that person was. That happens only about three billion times a day in this world. <laughs> And so you imagine that the other person has all these great qualities, but and then you that always happens, isn't it? People, you know, they they're kind of DUI driving them, driving under the influence of love endorphins. And and then they wake up one day and realize, oh my god, I'm with a human. <laughs> so so that's why it said that Ramante Yogi no Anante that the yogis, the spiritualists, actually enjoy in the infinite. And that doesn't mean we don't love other people, but we see other people as part of that infinite, part of the absolute, part of Krishna. And so, um, so Ramante Yogi no Anante, Anante means in the infinite. Uh, Satyanande, they enjoy in the bliss of truth, the bliss of truth. Satyananda, this is a very literal translation. I'm kind of like a uh, very literal translator. And so, um, because if you think about it, all our suffering is because we, we were trying to get the bliss of untruth. Like, for example, if I'm trying to enjoy being my body, at my age, of course, it's, that wasn't a serious example. But... But let's say, for example, someone is trying to enjoy by having a certain kind of body because they think I am the body. Well, we're not the body. So that's not Satyananda. That's not the bliss of truth. It's the, bliss, it's the false bliss of an illusion. Or again, we already talked about a relationship with someone that you are sort of, you know, you're not really seeing what's there. And so a yogi enjoys in the infinite and in that which actually is real. Which is, for example, you as an eternal, beautiful soul or uh, enjoying in, in Krishna, the source of your existence. So, satyan chidatmani, and again, they take pleasure, the yogis take pleasure in uh, the infinite, in the bliss of truth, and in chidatmani, which means in the conscious self, the conscious self, not the false ego, but the real person, the person you really are. And iti, therefore, or thus, because all these things are true, therefore, iti rama padena self, that absolute truth or God is called rama because the word rama means source of pleasure. And so it's interesting because you have all this kind of this theology going on and yoga, but it's all about how you can be happy. It's all about how you can experience unlimited pleasure, infinite pleasure. 
And so the word Rama, I won't go into all the grammatical details, no matter how you may beg me, but <laughs> the word Rama here, and so therefore the verb was used, Ramante, the first word of this verse was Ramante, they enjoy, the yogis, which is rum from the same root, Ramante, not a Caribbean beverage, this is the verbal root <laughs> of rum. So, and therefore the absolute truth of God is called Rama, the source of pleasure, Iti Rama, and that is how we indicate uh, the absolute truth. The word krish, by the way, Krishna, uh, krish is a, an interesting Sanskrit verb, which means attraction or traction. It can mean plowing, for example. So how can something mean attractive and also plowing? <laughs> because you, have to, you need to look no farther than the two curious English words Traction, like a tractor, and attraction. And why are those words the same? And the same in many languages because attraction is simply mental traction. If something pulls your mind, it's attractive because it, right? You can pull a plow or you can pull a mind. If you pull a plow, it's traction. If you pull someone's mind, that's attraction. So it's a, just like in English, it's the same in Sanskrit. So krish means attracting. And na, by the way, is an abbreviation of the verb nand, from which you get the word ananda, which you probably know, bliss. Ah, by the way, is a prefix. It means intense. So intense pleasure is ananda. The actual word is nanda. And so an abbreviation of that word nanda is na, krishna. So you have krishna meaning the one who is God who is all attractive and the source of pleasure. So that's what the word Krishna means. Hare, ladies first. Hare is uh, etymologized, analyzed to be from the, the feminine word hara, which is a word for Radharani, uh, who takes away our, our troubles. Uh, in Sanskrit, if a feminine word ends in a long a, a, then the vocative form where you address that person is a, like Radhe. Radha is Krishna's consort, and then Radhe which is a very popular thing among uh, in India. Radhe means directly addressing her, as in he Radhe. And so similarly from Hara, Hara, you get Hare. So Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, it's a meditation on God, on the absolute truth, as the source of infinite pleasure and the embodiment of infinite beauty. So that's pretty positive. And that's why I chant it. Because I, I just grew up in a family, I had really good parents, and you know, religion or was not about guilt. It was not, I mean, we just didn't do that. We didn't do guilt in our family. Other than, I mean, my mother made me, made me feel guilty enough, but not about religion. You know, about other things, like the fact that I was misbehaving. So, so it's very positive, and it works. I know there's this nice uh, thing by George Harrison, the, the Beatle George Harrison. Uh, he was in a plane. And the plane suddenly dropped, and it really looked like the plane was going to crash in a lightning storm. And he was in this plane, he started shouting Hare Krishna in the middle of the flight, and, and uh, he didn't die. So he said that Peter Sellers, the actor, had a similar experience. Anyway, so I did it because it works. I don't do things that don't work. I mean, I, I don't think that's an arrogant thing to say, but it's just, you know, there's an old saying, the truth is what works. And so in my life, I'm not into rituals, I never was. And um, so everything I'm doing in my own spiritual practice, which I've been doing for actually about um, 
Phew. 49 and a half years. I started when I was three months old. So it's incredibly precocious. Anyway, yeah, in, in several months, it'll be fifth, my fifth year anniversary of uh, doing this thing. And um, I do it because it works. Otherwise, why would I do it? And when I started my practice, I wasn't lonely. I actually had lots of friends. And um, I had a good life. And I grew up in Southern California, had a really great family. We were, you know, financially doing well. I went to the best public university in the country, which was UC Berkeley. And so, but I wanted to know where do I come from? What's, what does life mean? I wanted to know the important things. And so I, I started doing this and it works. And here I am. Half a century later, I want to testify. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's why that's why I chant. Yes. Sir, I'm a stupid question. Oh no, no, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> um, when you say it works, um, it works in what way and what? That's a very intelligent question. Yeah. That's really good. Um, how does it work? Okay. Uh, I would say that it brings me back to the three fundamental qualities of myself, which in Sanskrit can be expressed by the well-known little phrase, Satchitananda. Sat means eternal existence, or true being. And like in satsanga, like association of people who are really living, have true life. And so, um, Obviously, I'm still inside this physical body. Um, but when I say achieved it, you, even in this life, there's, there's a Sanskrit term, which is jivan mukta. Jivan means living, and mukta means liberated. So jivan mukta means sort of the living liberated. And what it means, even in this life, even inside your present body, even while you're still out there in the world, you can experience spiritual liberation. It's not just that, you know, when you die, you keep your fingers crossed. Uh, you can actually experience that in this life. You can experience the eternal realm. <coughs> it's just like, let's say, for example, you're, well, let's say you, you wanted to live in Italy for some reason. And so you applied for an Italian residence visa. So even before you get your final residency or citizenship, you can still visit Italy. And so the idea is, even before we leave this body, Jivan Mukta, you can experience the spiritual realm. You can experience your own eternal nature. And so that's, I would say, to use a typical crass capitalist metaphor, that's the first payoff. You know, all these capitalist metaphors like bottom line, payoff, cash, you know, cash in. Anyway, so, so that's the first thing. And then chit means consciousness which is kind of, you know, overlaps here. So yes, I've, uh, I've had, I would say, far more than enough realizations of spiritual things, the things which are self-evidently true. It's not, it's not like a hallucination. It's not some, you know, like an LSD trip or I just had some, you know, wild experience. Or it's just, because that's not what I wanted. I mean, when I start, I started this when I was 20 years old, actually. Oh my God, I give away my age. Anyway, so, and 
you know, we, I was in Berkeley and everyone knew what LSD was and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And I specifically did not want to go up and come down. I specifically wanted to live permanently as my normal waking consciousness every day in higher consciousness. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't just looking for some far out experience because then you come back and you're the same you know, fool you were before you went up. And so that's not what I was looking for. I wanted to live all the time, every day. I wanted that to be my default consciousness, higher consciousness. And that's what happened. I mean, that sounds very pretentious, like I'm bragging, but I don't think I'm better than you. And I don't think I achieved anything that you can't achieve if you want to. So such it, and then Ananda, bliss. And I, think I, since I started this, I think I'm basically always happy. Anyway, that sounds a little silly, but, but it's true. I don't think, I can't remember really, like it's like a really major problem. And, and not that, I mean, of course, in every life things happen. But so in terms of uh, experiencing, living your real life as your real self and having knowledge, real understanding of the nature of reality and being blissful, truly blissful. That's what I experienced. And of course, we're all works in progress. I don't mean to say that I'm perfect by any means, but I can say that when I took this process seriously, within a very short time, my life was almost indescribably better than it had been. So that's why I did it. I took the blue pill. <laughs> yes. Uh, you want to tell us something about Nitya Mukta and Nitya Mukta? Yes, yes, yes. Nitya means always or eternally, and Mukta means liberated, and Bhadda means bound. Now, these are terms from the Bhagavatam, 11th canto of the Bhagavatam. Krishna says these, uh, the word Nitya, Bhadda eternally, sort of imprisoned in the world, being used figuratively because the soul is actually himself always really liberated. For example, let's say someone has a, uh, actually one time I, I did become delusional, uh, <laughs> even more than tonight. It was, um, I, I was in Brazil. I did a lot of work in Latin America. And so at one point I flew from Northeast uh, Brazil, which is the city of Recife, sort of the, the, the point, the point that bulges, you know, tips, points toward Africa where South America bulges up. And so I flew to London. I flew to Gatwick Airport and the person who was supposed to be assisting me forgot to bring my coat. So I went from this really kind of like the steamy tropics and then I, and Gatwick, you know, it's not, there's this jet way you walk, you had to get off the plane and walk a few hundred meters into the terminal. And it was England in January and it was not a mild winter. And so I went from the steamy tropics and into there. And then I, I got, um, you know, very short time, got a fever and I had sort of delirium. So, um, I forgot why I mentioned that. <laughs> what was I talking about, delirium? Yeah, yeah, so, so, so let's say, okay, and I remember what I was saying, just kind of, you know, relishing those fond memories of my delirium. <laughs> so, so let's say someone has a fever and is really kind of out of their head, you know? It's still the same person. Like, let's say someone is lying in a bed and they're not in the normal consciousness because of some medical problem. And the family standing around, they know it's the same person. That 
person whom they love is still their brother or sister, or mother, or father, or son, child, or whatever. It's the same person. It's just that they've forgotten temporarily who they are. And so right now, we're actually in the spiritual world. Because, you know, the, the multiverse, there's actually, it's a, what is it Carl Sagan that guys do science TV shows? He said that the only worldview in ancient cultures which could rival modern science in terms of how big the idea was, was this one. Because the sacred Sanskrit literature talks about millions and millions of universes. And yet all these millions and millions of universes are just kind of a, a little thing tucked away in the spiritual world. You know, for people that want to have an experience of trying to be God and be self-centered and, you know, what if I ran the zoo and all that. And so we're, you know, brought into this world, we're given material bodies and we get to take our best shot and, you know, see how much we can become great people here in this world or beautiful or intellectual or sexy or rich or powerful, whatever. But all this going on, all these millions of universes are just a very small part of the spiritual world. And that's, and, and so we're in the spiritual world and we actually are pure souls. We have a degree of knowledge and beauty and happiness that we can't really even understand right now. And all we have to do is wake up. All we have to really do is wake up and remember. And that's why this process is so natural because you're not learning something you didn't know. You actually know all these things. You simply have to remember them. There's one very point, I mean, you know that you're an eternal being and that you actually live in an eternal world. You just forgot it. And the reason we forget it is because we become infatuated with this costume. I mean, imagine a costume party where everyone became so infatuated with their costume, they forgot it was a costume, and they never came back to their real identities. That's the material world. Yes? In Patanjali Yoga Sutras, there's a section that actually talks about supernatural powers that the yogis yes. can have. Can you explain a little bit why you would put that in? Because it's a, you know, he's giving a complete explanation. He just he tells you that this is a distraction. This can actually deviate you from your real progress, but he's just telling you what it is. He's not he's not censoring these things. <coughs> Uh, yes. Marge, you said that when you say you don't help, you just need to remember that we are spiritual beings. Is that enough? Because it says that Maya, or the material energy, has a covering potency. So, is it, are we, can we awaken by our own? Well, Chris, there's an interesting verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, Daivi yesha gunamayi mamamaya duratiya mami vijay prapadyante mayangi tam tarantite, which means that um, he says this divine power of illusion. First of all, he says it's my power. And he says this maya, this illusory power of mine, is duratiya, which literally means hard to overcome. That's literally what it means. Dur, hard, ati, over, aya, come. Very hard to overcome this illusion. But, mam eva jay but those who approach me. It's interesting because the, the Sanskrit verb prapadyante, 
uh, is often translated those who surrender to me. And it has taken on kind of like that connotative meaning in, in devotional Sanskrit literature. But literally the word means to approach. Pra means toward and pad means to go. So prapadyante means literally those who approach me. They cross over this maya. By the way, the word they cross is taranti. And this is the same Sanskrit verb from which you get the word tara as an avatara. It's a little curiosity here. And ava in Sanskrit means downward. So an avatar means someone who uh, saves some foreign planet from uh, greedy multi planetary capitalists. No, that was a movie. By the way, James Cameron admitted to a friend of mine, who was a friend of James Cameron, that he made the avatar blue because of Krishna. And that's also why he got the marks on the forehead. So, but anyway, the word avatara means literally one who crosses down. The idea is that an avatar uh, crosses down from the spiritual realm to this realm, avatara, and then by doing so, opens a channel back to the spiritual realm, and then you cross back up to that spiritual realm, Taranti. That's why sacred places in India where avatars have come are called Tirthas uh, from the same root, because the Tirtha literally means a crossing. And so the avatar comes down, opens a channel, and then you can cross back up to the spiritual realm. It's just interesting. So, but anyway, that's what the Gita verse says. That yes, you cannot... Uh, because if someone's greater than you, let's say more powerful, or uh, for example, let's say you want a job and you apply for a job and the employer doesn't really need you. You need the job, but they've got hundreds of applications. So you can't, you know, threaten the person. You can't, you know, scream, pound your fists on the floor or something. Uh, and you, you really need to somehow or other persuade the person to accept you. It's like in a relationship. Let's say you fall in love with someone and they're still thinking about it. You know, somehow or other, you have to persuade that person. You have to somehow or other convince that person that your love is real and that you're the right person for them and so on. So the idea is that the, the reason illusion exists at all is because we're trying to exploit this world. Basically, this is a universe of shoplifters. Because the entire universe belongs to the person who made it. And we are kind of sort of merrily going about our way, trying to enjoy things, eating this, buying that, claiming something else. And people get really crazy if they even think they own other people. Like, that's my girl. Or something so. <laughs> Actually, there was a song called My Guy. It was a Motown song. Anyway, so we are claiming ownership of other people, of land, of planets, of it's like, you know, who, to whom does the moon belong? Well, you know, there, there are multiple claims, or there are multiple claims on Antarctica. Or, you know, or the, the Australians own Australia, or Americans own America. And so we're claiming literally not only our own planet, but even other planets. And someone needs to call time out and say, well, wait a second. Maybe someone actually 
already has the deed to the universe. I mean, it, it's amazing. It, it's like, let's say you walk, let's say you see a house with the door open and you walk in and just start living there and taking things and the police come and you said, well, you know, it was open. Or... <laughs> the point is, if you see an open house, it's your responsibility as a citizen to inquire as to who owns the house. So in the same way, if we were just civilized, we would inquire as to who owns this planet or does someone own this planet? Who made this planet? Who made our bodies? Sometimes people give the argument that my body belongs to me. Okay, if you made your body, then maybe it belongs to you. But the body, as we know, is millions of times more sophisticated than our best computers. It's like super ridiculously sophisticated engineering. Beyond, we're still discovering it. It's taking centuries of competent, dedicated science to begin to understand the engineering of our own bodies. It's taking centuries and thousands and millions of scientists to try to figure out the engineering of our own bodies. So if someone's best explanation is no one built it, uh, you know, Perhaps you should be medicated. But the idea is, I mean, if we look at our own bodies, if we look at our own bodies, I mean, who made it? Who's the engineer? We should ask these questions, not just assume that I can exploit my own body, I can exploit other people's bodies, I can lay claim to the planet, other planets. This is going on kind of in a, sort of a reckless way. And that's why we are subject to karma. That's why we are subject to illusion, because we're kind of living like shoplifters. And so uh, when we start asking, where does this all come from? Does someone own this? Like, who built this? Then we start to become truly civilized, and the, the illusion starts to fade away, and we start to be, experience enlightenment. So as potentially points out, I mean, I mean, part of enlightenment is moral and ethical. It's not just fancy techniques, meditation techniques. There's a, there's a huge ethical component to it. Yes? So if, um, if you're coming from a place of like, truth and honesty, and you see the illusion around you, how do you personally like stay grounded and um, coexist with right. untruth in the world? Another good question. Um, I should bring you along my program. <laughs> um, we really need what is commonly called satsanga. We really need to associate with fellow sincere souls who share our values and our concerns. I mean, for example, why do athletes hang out together? Why do artists hang out together? Because, you know, association. And so, yeah, we need, it doesn't mean we reject everyone else. Or, I mean, you know, we should be nice and kind to everyone, you know. But um, yeah, we need good company. They say in Spanish, dime con quien andas. Tell me who you hang out with, I'll tell you who you are. <laughs> and so we really do need to keep good company. Anything else? Uh, not? Thank you all very, very much. I, uh, I really do appreciate that you've taken some of your valuable time to come tonight. And uh, it's been a pleasure.